As we come to the word here, let's, uh, let's take a moment, let's pray for uh, God's blessing as we hear and that God would speak to us. Father, we, uh, the, as we've continued to go through the book of Lamentations here, um, it, is, it is a heavy book. It's a book, though, that we need. It's a book that speaks to the reality of so many of our lives. Um, if, we've not ex- if we're not currently experiencing suffering or have not experienced suffering or, or have once experienced suffering, Lord, it will come to us someday. Teach us how to lament. How to lament also with others as well. To be moved deeply. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us in this time. We pray that uh, this word would become more clear to us. And that it would inform all of our, how we see our lives, how we see you. We take away the, the scales from our hearts, the scales from our own eyes to see you rightly. And to come away from this morning with a deeper trust in who you are. A deeper knowledge of who you are. And a gratitude that no matter what, you are a steadfast, loving, kind God. Break down the, <clears throat> the barriers in our own hearts. That allow us to see you in your beauty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Lamentations this morning, continuing through... Uh, the, the book of Lamentations. We're in chapter 3 this morning. If you uh, turn your Bibles there. Uh, Lamentations, again, is, is a book of deep lament and woe and tears. Uh, it is five, uh, five separate, well, I would say separate, but five, um, five elegies, five reflections upon one event here, which is the the sorrow and the suffering, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, of Zion, at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. And so this was the, the song of lament that was composed by, by the author here, again, in five movements, five separate uh, reflections put together here. And we'll see t- today that there is a, a progression that's going through all of these laments, um, really culminating here in uh, the, this middle chapter, the third lament. And so, Lamentations 3, we're going to read the whole chapter. This is the word of God. <clears throat> I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness 
He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth. To deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High. To subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who are my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Amen. Those verses, those key verses in the, in the center there, verses 22 to 23 in particular, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You'll find those words framed and adorned upon countless walls, etched upon cross stitches and placed in convenient places in our homes. It's even our memory verse for for February, right? Kids, it's an opportunity for you to not just get your $5 ice cream coupon, but to have it etched upon your minds. That's because they're beautiful words. They are words for us, for you to remember at all times and to live by. But context is everything. It's one thing to have those words framed upon the wall of your home. And it's another thing for those framed words to be hanging on the lone remaining wall of a bombed out house. Or for that cross stitch to be found among the ashes of a home burnt to the ground by a wildfire. Or kids, it's one thing for you to get your $5 ice cream. It's it's an entirely different thing though for you to have those, those words etched into your minds as you are bullied at school or as your best friend leaves you. For as good as those words are, as verses 22 and 23 are there, those, those examples, though, that I've just given, those, are, those more closely mirror the context. Right? People have been killed. Women and children have been killed brutally, or they've just been taken away off into foreign lands. The temple is gone. It seems like to these people that God is absent. Tears are poured out. Wailing cries pierce the air. And in the midst of all of the devastation, all of the tears, the words come from, parched, from a parched voice over cracked lips. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That truth is made even more astonishing amid lament. And not just astonishing, but mysterious also. Mysterious amid lament, right? Those words whispered at night alone in the darkness, mourning a divorce. Those words as the cry of the heart when the medical test says positive. Those words racing through your mind as a child leaves the faith. But the thing is, it takes time to get there. It takes time to be able to really say that with a whole heart as we actually see in this lament. It doesn't just happen automatically. It happens along a trajectory, right? We've read the cries of the writer. We see a real hope, but it's a hope, though, that isn't cheap. It's a hope that is forged through the sorrows and sufferings and the lamentation. See, Lamentations 3 isn't as sweet without the historical context of the destruction happening there. And Lamentations 3 isn't as sweet as the laments, or or, uh, isn't as sweet without the laments from chapters 1 and 2. Or even in those words here, beginning in in 22, they're, they're, they're not as sweet without all of the words and the laments coming before it even, and after it. See, Lamentations follows a trajectory. It's a movement of hope amid the pain which only comes when, and, and happens by calling to mind the character of the Lord. There's a change that happens here in Lamentations 3. But it's not a change in the situation. It's a change which, within the author. And we see, he, he begins to understand this, that the Lord's mercy remains through our tears to comfort us 
and renew our hope. That truth there for the writer of Lamentations, the the truth for those people in, in Zion, is the same truth for us here. The Lord's mercy remains through our tears to comfort us and to renew us, to renew our hope. So thus far here, as we've seen in Lamentations, Lady Zion is in mourning. She's in ruins. And the poet has taken us through the, 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 the desolate city. And, and he's been a fellow observer here. And we've been observing with him. But now we see that the sufferings of Zion are lifted up by the author because it turns out he's one of them. We see in the first 18 verses here that he's no longer an observer. He's a fellow sufferer. He's a lamenter also. He's a citizen of Zion. And he raises his voice up along with the rest of the city. Zion's sorrow is his sorrow and vice versa. His sorrow is Zion's. There's a shared sorrow that they have. Zion's lament is funneled through him in this moment here. In a way that's kind of like when we do our prayers together, our, our, our prayers here in our worship service. There's one person praying, but yet all of our hearts and our prayers are being funneled through that person. And Zion's lament here is being funneled through this one author at this time. And he, he laments what he sees in his experience, what he's seen, what he is seeing, and what he's experiencing in the moment here. He says, begins at the, at the beginning, verse 1, I am the man who's seen affliction. He says, I'm the man and this is how the Lord appears. He first appears as an afflicting shepherd in the first six verses. Verses one through six there. I mean, we we, we think of Psalm 23. We sang it, but think of the words of Psalm 23, right? The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me into green pastures, still waters. Even though you lead me through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And all the way to the end, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But what do we have here? It says, I'm the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. The rod of the, the, the protection of the shepherd is now turned against him in wrath. He's being led into darkness rather than green pastures. And there he's withering away because he doesn't have anything to eat or drink. He's dwelling in darkness, not dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. God seems to be an afflicting shepherd. But God also seems to be walling him in in verses 7 through 9. If you've ever read the short story by Edgar Allan Poe, The Cask of Amontillado, that's what I think of here. Uh, the Cask of Amontillado has, a, has a, a two men. One of them is, is, a, is, is, is an enemy of the other, though not realizing what's, what the other one's about to do. Takes him into his wine cellar, and talking about, oh, this, this, the, the special cask of, of Amontillado. You, oh, it's going to be so wonderful. And he ends up chaining him to the wall in, in the wine cellar and then erecting a brick wall in front of him so that he's left there to die all alone, walled away from everyone else in the darkness so that no one can hear his story. Screens. That's what we see here in verses 7 through 9. He's walled me about so I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy. He shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with stones. No escape. His cries are stifled. The Lord also seems to be a hunter. Verses 10 through 13, he's, that he is prey to the predator who's laying in wait. 
He's the, 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 the hunter. The Lord is a hunter lying in stealth, shooting his arrows into his side. As we've seen all through, through Lamentations so far here, there's this clear attribution that the Lord did this. They say this over and over. God is the one who's done this. This is who God is. This is what he's done to us. And that's the questioning here. Aren't we as sheep? Aren't we as people? The Lord seems bitter because of the way that he's acted towards us. These are real cries that are based on real experiences of the, of the writer here. We've said that lament cries at the incongruity of God's promise and our circumstances. It looks at who God has said that he is and how our circumstances look right now and they just don't seem to match up and lament cries out, why God? We're given license to do so. Why? How? What's going on? But we're brought to perhaps the lowest point in the book here in verses 16 and 18. He talks about how he's been laid low and humbled. How his mouth is in the gravel. He's laying in the fetal position in the ashes like someone who's been pummeled with blows and left in the dirt. And he's there left with a despondent heart. It's all that he can see. It filters everything that he sees. Friends, if you've ever dealt with depression or deep anxiety or anything, you know how this feels. You know how everything is filtered through that darkness or that inner turmoil that you have, and there's nothing that anyone can say that will just automatically calm it down. Nothing that anyone can say that will lift those clouds or change the grid of how you see everything because it's a dis-ease down to your soul. That's what we have here. That's what the, the, the lamenter is crying out with. And here we have here the, the lowest moment, not only in, in Lamentations 3, but perhaps in the whole book of Lamentations. Verse 18, So I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. In other words, my hope in the Lord is as dead as my strength. My trust is as alive as the corpses that are in the street. My confidence in the Lord is as strong as the walls that are collapsed and burned right now. It's the reality of life in these words. There is the pain and the questioning in them. See, Scripture really does give words to our feelings and to our experiences sometimes, right? But we have that name there at the end. The name the Lord is spoken at the end. Spoken almost in bitterness. But with his name, though. As he says his name and he begins to reflect, that lament slowly turns. It sticks in his mind. It's the last word there and everything starts to hinge on it. He begins to reflect a little bit more upon the name of the Lord God, Yahweh. The Lord. The Lord. And he just can't shake it. He just can't shake it. He starts to think about the long history that he's had with him. Not just his history, but the history of Zion The history of Jerusalem, of Israel, going back all the way through the generations. And he's forced to reckon then, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? He begins to think, he's the God who who took our forefather Abraham as, as his own and he made a covenant with him. And he sealed that covenant that he made with him with a sign. He was a God who has been faithful to his promises to him through the thick and thin, even when it seemed impossible. And he would continue to be faithful to to, to our generations 
Even as they went all the way in, into Egypt and as they were enslaved and oppressed by the, by, by, by the Egyptians, God still remembered his covenant. He heard their cries and he led us safely through the wilderness, even in dire times. God remembered the covenant. And we had some real low points in our history, even before we had a king in the, the era of the judges. Some real low points, but yet the Lord God kept us from being scattered by the desires of our sinful hearts. And on and on it goes. Why? Because of his covenant commitments. The Lord. Who is he? He's a God full of steadfast love. Of covenant faithfulness in the good times and in the bad. Even in the times of destruction. Even in these wicked moments. And this is the turning point in the lament. And I think this is the turning point in the whole book of Lamentations. It's a slow turn to hope by recalling the Lord's steadfast love. Verses 19 all the way to 33. He says, Lord, look at my afflictions. Remember them, right? In verse 19, remember my affliction and my wanderings. In the Old Testament, talking to God, the, idea, the Old Testament idea of remembering is is acting according to your covenant. He's saying, remember my affliction, God, and my, and my only sense of hope is that you would remember then your steadfast love, your covenant faithfulness. And that's what leads him into these verses, those key verses in 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Those are astounding words. It's an incredible statement that he makes through the tragedy. He's seeing the carnage, seeing the blood, the starving children, the temple ruins. He hears the wailing of, and he hears the shouts of the enemy. And he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. If you get the phone call late at night. If your dreams and hopes for life are shattered, if you have the betrayal of a close relationship, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. What does that mean? And what, how can we speak that with, not with an emptiness, but with the weight that those words deserve? Because we all know that words can be spoken in unhelpful ways, right? Words that simply just become cliches, right? The Lord's steadfast love never ceases. Well, it may have seemed like it to them. He said, look at the temple. It's broken down. I don't have any, any clue that God is actually still with us. But see, amid the ruins, though, his steadfast love of the Lord for his people hadn't left. The writer hadn't, or the, the God hadn't sidestepped it. His character of mercy hadn't changed at all there. His mercies are new every morning. They, they never grow stagnant. They are as fresh and beautiful as the morning light breaking into the darkness every day. See, the darkness of Zion's destruction wasn't final. The mercy of the Lord would break upon them. And those words there, the Lord is my portion. A portion is an inheritance. The Lord is my inheritance. It is a share He's exulting in the share of the eternal God himself, that God had given himself as an inheritance. 
Right? Inheritance co- comes to families, right? He's beginning to, to, to be reminded also that I have a father-son relationship with this Lord. And the author is led to this conclusion by remembering the Lord's acts of his, of his mercy, of his covenant faithfulness. And friends, you can't look at God apart from his mercy. And you can't look at God's mercy apart from the cross. The cross is where all of our doubts of his mercy and of his steadfast love are put to an end. Right? We think God would even give himself? God would give himself to suffer and to die? To redeem his people? Well, there's nothing more that he could do for his people. He gave himself not merely to suffer and die, but to give himself to us as an inheritance. That's the wonderful mercy of God that we see in the person of Christ, Jesus. In Christ, the, Jesus, the mercy of God is in real living flesh and blood. And because of that, it is new every morning. And when we delve deeper into the gospel, his mercy becomes more and more fresh. We begin to see it applied in new ways. The ramifications of the cross in every moment, whether it's the times of that are good, the times where we feel guilt, or the times of overwhelming gloom. Often in Hebrew poetry, the center of the poem is the highlight. It's like the crux moment. It ramps up to the high point, and then everything else flows down from it. The center verses here in Lamentations 3 are verses 31 through 33. The center verses of Lamentations 3, which is also the center chapter of the whole book of Lamentations. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So this is the tension for anyone wrestling through the questions and lamentations. The sovereign God of suffering but yet also the covenantal Lord of mercy. Yahweh's, the Lord's sovereignty over the destruction, but also his character and his steadfast love, his covenantal faithfulness. See, both are part of this here. And the difficulty for a sufferer in Christ is reckoning with God's love and his mercy. But in the end, what wins the day? It's his mercy. It's his covenantal faithfulness. One is subservient to the other. And his heart, the heart of God, isn't to hurt for the sake of pain itself, but out of his covenantal love, out of his mercy. And that might sound odd to us. In fact, for some of us, it might even sound repelling. Unless we consider what are the promises of God's steadfast love. The Lord's steadfast love, the Lord's promises aren't for everything to go well in our lives. God never promises that. He promises to make us like him and for us to hold him as our highest good. And sometimes in his sovereignty, he uses pain for that purpose. His intent, though, isn't to hurt. His intent is to make well. And sometimes making well involves pain, but it's for the healing. After all, a surgeon inflicts pain, right? I mean, hopefully not in the middle of the surgery, (laughs) Or else the anesthesiologist hasn't done their right job. But afterwards, the surgery is painful in recovery, isn't it? But it's done for healing. It's done to make well. Why does the Lord not act similarly? 
That's something that Israel was well acquainted with. Over and over, they had painful experiences. But we heard this morning from the words in the Old Testament reading from Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Steadfast love for thousands, thousands. It was his steadfast love of the Lord God for his people that led them into that time there. Friends, are you, are you afraid of what's happening or what's happened to you because of the pain and the hurt will rise again? Are you afraid of lamenting what's happened to you? I want you to know that the Lord God, his mercy is new every morning. Friends, you can lament for healing. You can look at his promise through the cross. You can look at his promise for redemption. And that's something that's objective for us to hold on to. Hope isn't just a sentimental idea. It's not a feeling. But it comes through recalling the Lord's, the Lord's covenantal faithfulness in his prior actions and in his promises. It's recalling them to mind. It's holding them there. To borrow a phrase from an author that I've been, I've been reading on this, it's rehearsing those words in the darkness, rehearsing truth in the darkness, speaking them over and over in the darkness so that they become etched in our minds, so that they become the default words of our response. Now, that doesn't make the sadness go away, nor is it supposed to. Your emotions may not meet with the words of truth that are in your mind. Right? You, can, you can say those words, the, the verses from 22 and 23, you can speak them, but it may not always be with a smile. We're going to close our service with, the, with the, the hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. And in there, there are these great words, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. What is a frame? The frame is an emotional state. We don't trust in a frame. We don't trust in an emotional state. That's not where our trust is, where it comes from. The reason that we can have hope there is that it comes from a leaning upon Jesus, upon Jesus' name, his work, the steadfast love and mercy of God that's in him. It's something for you to hold on to because we all know that our own frames, our own emotional states are fleeting. They go up, they go down. Friends, why we need something objective to hold on to. We need something as an anchor for our souls. And that's who Jesus is. We see the mercy of God as the anchor of our souls in Jesus. So looking at God in your lament doesn't mean that your heart is just going to be lifted. It doesn't mean that you're going to feel better about everything. There will be ongoing tears. And perhaps there will even be new sorrows that emerge from all of it. But you have something real to hold on to. You have an anchor that will hold fast in the biggest storm. Hope comes to the writer. But it does take him a while to get to this point, right? Two and a half chapters of his wrestling through the sorrow before he could speak these words of explicit trust. See, faith sometimes involves waiting. Faith is forged through tears as we are forced to reckon with God in our pain. Doubt isn't inherently wrong. There's doubt that has skepticism with it, but there's also doubt that wonders why God 
doesn't seem to be as he's promised. And sometimes that doubt needs to do its work on us before we can come to the point of affirming the steadfast love of the Lord with true conviction. To have everything stripped away so that we can come back and see what it is that we truly have in Jesus. That's what steadfast love is. It's his love to not leave us in our unbelief, but to form us, though, according to Jesus and according to his good fatherly pleasure. Those verses there in 31 through 33, that's the high point. That's the crux. And then the rest of the chapter flows down from them. There's a change that happens in the remaining verses from 34 all the way to the end to 66. And what changes? The circumstances don't change. Everything is not magically better now here in, in Zion, in Jerusalem. He continues to outline continuing suffering. He continues to talk about how the tears are still there. The sorrow is still there. And God, you've made us as scum and garbage before the nations. The change, though, happens within him. What changes is his approach to suffering. You ask anyone who's suffered, the pain and the tears are still there. Lament is still ongoing. But there is a trust, though, that is founded in promise. And that allows him to reflect upon himself in verses 34 through 36. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit the Lord doesn't approve. These were the things that were done to Zion. But he also begins to reflect on himself. But also, weren't we Zion, Jerusalem? Weren't we also guilty of the same? Isn't that why God actually came and brought his judgment upon us here? And what it does is here, it leads him to rouse one another up in repentance so that they can understand mercy better, to understand it anew. That's part of the Lord's mercy, to show us ourselves. The circumstances continue. They're still in this destitution. Things aren't changing. But what changes, though, is that he turns to the Lord in hope. And he calls out to the Lord amid his lostness. And this is beautiful here. This is wonderful. In verse 57, we finally have the Lord responding. He says, you, you came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. This is the only time in Lamentations where God speaks. There's no mention of bringing the suffering to an end here, of giving them what they deserve, of leaving them in the ruins. He just says this. God just says this. Do not fear. God speaks the final words of suffering. The final words in our sufferings. And it's a word that comes from his steadfast love. It's a word for his people. He says, there's no need to fear. This may only be the beginning of your sorrows, but trust me. Right, we, we, we say trust is earned, right? It takes time to trust someone. You have many instances of proof, many hours of faithfulness. Trust can also be broken. A lifetime of trust can be shattered by one moment of deception. And it's possible to look at God in this way. You tell me to trust you, but you've brought this upon me. God, I don't know if I can trust you. But what demands our attention is this. God says, I've given you everything. 
I've given you my son. He has poured out his life for your sake. So why would I back away? Why am I untrustworthy? Friends, how can, he says, son, daughter, how can trust be broken when my son Jesus was broken for you? I am your portion. I am your inheritance. What I have is given to you. So trust me. Do not fear. Things may not get better anytime soon. Things may not get better ever. But that's what it means, though, to rehearse truth to ourselves. The final words of this lament echo this conclusion here in verses 64 through 66. He is acknowledging the justice of God, acknowledging the recompense of God, that God will make it all right, that he will act with righteousness and vindicate his cause. But the the poet, the author, doesn't know how. I mean, how could anyone looking at the scene of destruction know? And the same for us here. How can God redeem this situation? Well, we don't know how, and that's not up for any of us to figure out. We may not know, but we, what we do, though, is we hold to his word. We hold to his promise that has been sealed in time space by Jesus. Friends, these are hard things to say. They're hard things to go through. They're hard things to think about. But in the end, it comes down to the steadfast love of the Lord. He never makes any promise of your life getting better. He never makes any promise of the lamentable moments in your life turning out for the best. At least not according to the life that we know it right now. Instead, though, he tells us this. Do not fear. Do not fear. Steadfast love of God is to grow us in our trust for Him and to grow us in our desire for Him and to believe Him when He says those words, Do not fear. Do you trust that He will do that work within you? The good news here is that He hasn't left you alone to white knuckle it, He's given you a helper, He's given you a spirit. A spirit not of fear, but a spirit of adoption, though. Reminding us that we are children of God. We are his children. And we are learning to trust him as a little child does to a loving father. He is working with the word as we rehearse the truth in the darkness. And learning this trust may take a while. It may be hard. It may involve baby steps. But God tells us, do not fear. And those are the words of the triune God. The words of the the spirit of adoption, not a spirit of fear. The words of Jesus that we heard calming the storms in the boat with his disciples, take heart, it's I, do not fear. The words of the father to his children, my children, do not fear. There are no better words to hear or to hold on to from the Lord who has given himself to us in his covenant faithfulness. As we come to the table here shortly, those same words are spoken to us visibly. Friends, little children, do not fear. It's an oath that we have, an oath here, his promise that's been sealed by Jesus Christ. It's written in his blood. And we come to the table with the sign of his promise that we receive yet again. The sign of his promise that is an objective reality that Jesus, by his body and his blood, by his work for you, and where he is even right now at the right hand of God the Father, 
that Jesus is the anchor of your soul. Let's pray. Lord God, we need those words. For how else can we have any hope amid suffering or sorrows or tears? It's nothing that is conjured up from within us. It's something that we have to look to and something that we have to listen. Your words, do not fear, because your steadfast love never ceases. Thank you for not leaving us alone, for giving us reminders of that, of Jesus, of your spirit, to come back again and to, to, to hear your word when you tell us to not to fear. Prepare our hearts as we come to the table here in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.